Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Paul, I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that when people work from home, they're not putting on a suit and tie and they (laughs) may still be in their pajamas, depending on who you are. And there's a question of, will they ever put on a suit again? And will they find themselves in pajamas more often going forward as they increasingly work from home, regardless of the progress or the progression of the pandemic? Joining us is James Fallon, Editorial Director of Women's Wear Daily to talk about pajamas and the new workplace attire. James, uh, aside from being tongue in cheek, there's been an absolute ravaging of the retail landscape with uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of people furloughed or laid off with in the industry and a real existential question facing the entire industry of whether we'll ever recover. Can you give us a sense just right now of what the thinking is among major retailers and fashion houses in terms of whether they think that a lot of these people can be brought back and be restarted after this as things get back to normal? I think the sense, Lisa, is that they will come back, but very, very slowly. And um, you had the announcement from Capri Holdings this morning that they were furloughing their 7,000 North American retail employees, and they're saying their stores now won't reopen until June 1st. And that's probably one of the latest dates we've seen of stores being reopened. Um, So if consumers aren't being able to go to a store for six months of 2020, and this whole social distancing becomes part of our everyday norm, I just don't see people rushing out to buy, you know, clothing right away um, beyond essentials. So you're looking probably at 2021, if then, before people begin to behave, quote, normally and stop wearing suits and pajamas together. (laughs) So, So, Jim, what are retailers actually going to do with the inventory that's been sitting in the store for months? That's the key question. I mean, a lot of it will go, of course, into the off-price channel, but even the TJXs and Ross stores can only take so much of it. Um, You had Manny Chirico of PVH last week saying that what they're looking at doing is taking some of the existing more classic spring-summer merchandise of 2020 and basically putting it in a warehouse until spring 2021 and then bringing it out again. Um, You know, a pair of chinos is a pair of chinos, so that will last. The down downstream effect that will have on manufacturers, however, will of course be significant. I mean, their orders already are being cut for fall. If suddenly for spring 2021, they're basically getting 20% of what they normally are expecting to get, that again is going to have a real impact on overseas manufacturers, particularly in China. Jim, is this just accelerating a trend away from brick and mortar? Yes, really. I mean, it's it's a systemic change, and the U.S. was overstored for decades, and so this is probably going to be a major shaking out of whether the consumer returns. Once we're all allowed to leave our houses, we may actually find the, the stores a, 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 an escape mechanism, but I think, again, it will very much shake out the weaker players and even some of the medium-level players, and we'll begin adju- adjusting the square footage per consumer that's needed to be adjusted for years. Jim, what do you think the impact is going to be on luxury? 
Luxury, you're probably going, I mean, they're already down again. I mean, in China, they were down 85%, et cetera. I mean, luxury may come back faster. But again, depending upon the nature of Wall Street, I mean, luxury, of course, rebounded pretty quickly after the 2008 to 2010 financial crisis. If the stocks come back and those people start making money again, definitely. But so much of the luxury market was dependent upon the Chinese that it will be depending on whether the Chinese consumer comes back. We're already seeing anecdotal evidence of that consumer beginning to spend in China. But a lot of that luxury spending also was dependent upon the Chinese tourist. And I don't see the tourists coming from China again, certainly through the second half of the year. So when you talk about uh, the acceleration in the shift away from brick and mortar to an online presence, I'm wondering about an increase in bankruptcies since there are a number of retailers that have been holding on by their claws to their existence for years and have a lot of debt and have been enabled to do so by their investors. Do you think that this will actually lead to a shakeout with increasing bankruptcies or do you think that there will be sort of a tripping along here on an ongoing basis? I think you will see more bankruptcies coming through. I mean, if you take the number, I think I saw Moody's 77% of the bad debt within Moody's was really held by six companies, um, you know, JCPenney and J.Crew being amongst them. So you already saw the reports others and us have written that Neiman Marcus is maybe looking at a bankruptcy. So you are going to see more bankruptcies probably even during this, let alone coming out of this. Absolutely. I don't think the wheat can hang on. If they're not getting any business for six months, they can't, they can't hang on forever. Jim Fallon, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your commentary. Jim Fallon, editorial director of Women's Wear uh, Daily. Lisa, I thought that was a good question. I think uh, you know it's certainly reasonable to assume that there will be a. This will cause a big shakeout uh, in the retail space. A lot more store closings, which is the theme we've heard about. Yeah, I think that it's going to be brutal, and it's brutal for for the tens and thousands of people who've been laid off from the industry. I, I also do wonder how it will change style going forward. I mean, it seems almost silly to to think about something like that, but I feel like working from home will change people's perspectives at least a little bit going forward. And will people want to get dressed up and go out, or does that would that seem frivolous given what we've just gone through? Or, or on the other side, will people just really want to? you know, rip loose after yeah. this is done, you know? <laughs> I'm, I'm actually voting more on that side. I got to be yeah. honest, looking around, but just saying. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Lisa Abramowitz and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. You know, there's a real question right now of whether the pendulum has swung too far to the bearish side or whether it's not bearish enough. And that is a question that analysts are trying to answer completely blind since you cannot model chaos and since you cannot know a lot of the questions or answers to the questions currently in the market. Joining us right now is Marco Papik, chief strategist for Clock Tower Group. Uh, and he has a, a compelling view of this, which actually goes against consensus, I would argue. Marco, you argue that people are perhaps a little too pessimistic. Am I getting that right? Yes, I would say that that's the case. Thank you for having me on, Lisa. Okay, so why? Well, because I think uh, one of the things that's happening in um, all the modeling community out there is whether it's you know looking at the medical data, whether it's looking at the economic data, is that we're largely linearly extrapolating from really, really bad data. Uh, the data on the virus itself is universally poor on almost every single 
um, characteristic. The only thing that we really know about the virus, the only thing that we have pretty good data with, is that it does attack different age cohorts in different way. Other than that, we don't really know the mortality rate. We don't really know uh, the infection rate. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is we don't really know um, how, um, how the economy is going to develop over the next several months. And one of the reasons we don't know that is that we don't really understand how policy about social distancing will change over the next several weeks or months. And so what I propose is that we kind of think about how policy reacts to something like a balance between you know, um, a virus and economic impact. And I think what's going to happen over time is that the unit cost of fear is going to rise. And what I mean by that is that at the beginning of a crisis like this, fear is cheap. I mean, there's no real cost to staying at home for the first week, second week, third week. But as unemployment mounts, as people start to project their own economic well-being into the future, you will see the unit cost of fear rise, and that will then compel policymakers to alter the current social distancing policies in some way, thus mitigating the ultimate uh, economic impact of the virus itself. That's a dynamic argument. It's really difficult to model. But it's not just linearly extrapolating from where we are today um, to the next two to three months, which obviously would produce a very bearish forecast. All right. So, Marco, pencil out for us, if you would, kind of your GDP outlook for, you know, the remainder of 2020, because there's a question, I guess, initially people thought it might be a V, quick snapback, then maybe a U, maybe not so quick, and then maybe even something like an L, which is we're in this for a long term. Okay, well, let's let's go back a little bit and think about what is currently priced in in terms of GDP uh, kind of outcomes. And I think that um, on March 23rd, we hit an intraday low of 21.74 on the S&P 500. That's a 36% drawdown, which is, you know, which is the average drawdown in a recession. So I think the S&P 500 really, really quickly priced in a, a, a relatively bad outcome uh, for the economy. What I would say is that you know, that was March 23rd. We already had at that point about a week worth of social distancing policies. Um, clearly, we're going to have them throughout April. Uh, according to the OECD, each one of those months will produce a 2% decline in the annualized GDP. So I think it's fair to say that globally speaking, we're probably going to lose for sure uh, from an annual growth perspective, 4%. So instead of three and a half, we're already down at negative 0.5. We could say maybe another half a month or month of that. So I think that on an annualized basis, we're going to be at minus one, minus one and a half percent global GDP growth, which is obviously absolutely terrible. But then there is this dynamic aspect where we see social distancing policies altered, uh, alternated, mitigated, reduced. And then you have the wall of tsunami coming behind you, this wave of fiscal stimulus that is absolutely unprecedented. And it is something that I think the market didn't price in on March 23rd. The speed with which we priced in a recession tells you two things. One, we have no idea, as you said, Lisa, at the beginning, we have no idea how to price chaos. So that was one of the reasons we fell down so hard. The second thing is that I think most investors, and I know because we, we speak to a lot of macro hedge funds at the firm, that is their business. Um, you know, most of them did not expect anything like this. Uh, most of them used the 2009 stimulus playbook as the you know, best case scenario. And, and then on top of that, many said, well, politics of the upcoming election will actually de de uh, delay some of these stimulus efforts. 
Yes, this is sort of game theory, right? It's basically how bad does it have to get before the tsunami of money gets even bigger? And that basically this sort of uh, feedback loop will provide a backstop to markets. Am I getting that right? Well, here's what I would say, actually, Lisa. I don't even think it needs to get uh, much worse. So, for example, right now, I think you can objectively say that things are actually getting better. You know, once the market saw that Italy and Spain can figure this out, it doesn't matter how bad it gets in the U.S. this week. In other words, once we as market participants can kind of check off that a relatively incompetent OECD country, i.e. Italy, can get a handle of this issue, it doesn't matter if we have two bad weeks going forward in the U.S. That will be kind of like priced out. So I actually think that in terms of what's coming down the pipeline on the stimulus front, it doesn't even have to get worse for us to get more of it because policymakers now have figured out that they can use this as a reason to kind of get a lot of uh, a lot of things they couldn't pass in the past because of pol- uh, polarization, they're now putting like a shopping list together for that infrastructure plan that may be a month away that could be one to $2 trillion without really even needing that extra 10% of GDP. Because remember, we're at 12% of GDP in terms of stimulus. That's more than double what in 2009 the American uh, Reinvestment and Recovery Act uh, basically gave us. We're already a double of that, and we may get more no matter how bad things get over the next couple of weeks. And Marco, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate uh, your point of view. Certainly, I think that more optimistic than I think we've heard generally speaking over the last several days. Marco Popic, partner chief strategist for the Clock Tower Group based out of Santa Monica, California. So that was at least certainly a different take on how this could all proceed over the next several weeks and months. I see how uh, pandemic mentality is allowing people to lobby for things that they might have wanted anyway. I'm certainly getting lobbied at home for all sorts of electronic devices <laughs> right. that they had wanted anyway, and me being much more willing to shell out to keep them <laughs> to occupied. So there, is, so there is that. I mean, I've got my own fiscal stimulus going on right here. This is Bloomberg Markets with Lisa Abramowitz and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Well, like all financial markets, the municipal bond market has certainly been racked by volatility over the last couple of months. But the upcoming and potential fourth fiscal stimulus plan is likely to include a pretty big slug for infrastructure. The question for a lot of investors is, what would that mean for the municipal bond market? Fortunately, we have Michael Zezas, Chief U.S. Public Policy and Municipal Strategist from Morgan Stanley, joining us. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start by just giving us a lay of the land, what it's been like to be a municipal bond investor over the past couple of months. Uh, It hasn't been fun. Um, the volatility that you've seen over the last call it, three to four weeks uh, is pretty astonishing. So the, the moves you had from basically the tights of the muni bond market to the wides were both bigger in magnitude and speed by several degrees than what you had in the, the global financial crisis. So, uh, and, you know, it is, this is not something that is necessarily unexpected because you've got a muni market structure, which is given to bouts of volatility. And you saw this in paper tantrum and you saw this uh, in 2010. Uh, but this is this was just degrees further off the chart, literally, quite literally off the charts. Michael, there's a question about just the volatility that comes from a market that's not as liquid as, say, treasuries. And then there's the volatility stemming from the question of whether we're going to start seeing Municipal defaults, and I'm just going to go full catastrophic here. Is the subway system in New York City going to default? Um, 
you know, that is, that's actually, that's a more complicated question to answer than you would think. That's not what uh, no. I want to hear. The answer is no. <laughs> These major metropolitan areas are solvent and we're going to be fine. Is that not the reality yeah. that we're talking about? Well, well, major metropolitan areas different than subway system. Here's what I'd say. The, 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 uh, the chief of the MTA basically expressed the view that they need extra cash flow support because they're down 90% on ridership. And I don't think that's necessarily hyperbole. Now, in the bill that was just passed by Congress, they got about $3.8 billion worth of external support. So from a, you know, from a cash flow perspective, you know, they're saying that they need more than that. Uh, and probably a lot of this is going to be contingent on how long ridership is depressed as it is. I wouldn't necessarily conflate what's going on with the MTA as being indicative of kind of broader metro areas generally, right? The MTA is sort of its own system. New York City government is its own sort of separate balance sheet and income statement per se. So I think we have to be a little bit careful about looking at a credit like the MTA, which has a lot of debt and is experiencing a substantial decline in ridership and extrapolating from that to the broader kind of, you know, uh, you know like a high grade city metropolitan area world of muni bonds. So, Michael, there is talk in the uh, upcoming fiscal stimulus uh, number four that there would be, a, again, a pretty big piece of infrastructure. We're hearing that from uh, Speaker Pelosi. How do you think that might play out, and how's kind of the market reacting to uh, that kind of potential? Um, at the moment, I don't think the market is terribly focused on this. It's probably more focused on whether or not the Fed is going to uh, intervene here eventually. But here's what I'd say about infrastructure when it comes to, to munis. Obviously, it matters quite a bit how the spending is structured. But historically, when the federal government has decided to boost the amount of infrastructure spending um, it's doing, what it's actually done is take some of the credit pressure off of the state and local governments. If the federal government is putting more money into the system, the state and local governments spend a little bit less of their own. So it effectively helps them uh, improve on their capital needs, but not on their dime, so to speak. So. If you got that slug of money, you know, I kind of view that as a modest credit positive, uh, not necessarily addressing what are the acute needs of the muni credit system right now, but I'd say it's a modest positive. I guess the reason why, the reason why I asked about the subway system, and yes, that's an idiosyncratic credit, I guess on a broader level, and you're talking about the amount of money that's going to get injected in states and municipalities from the CARE Act and, and, and from Congress. and. I'm just struggling to understand the depth of the pain. You have a slowdown in local economies. You have an incredible increase in spending, trying to build out the healthcare infrastructure. Is there a high chance that we're going to see muni defaults in a significant way, in a way that we've never seen before, especially when you throw in the pensions and the underfunded status there? Yeah, well, I think you have to answer that question sector by sector. I guess the first thing I would say is that you know, $150 billion out of this bill going State uh, ends up being somewhere around kind of two to five percent of uh, general fund revenues of states. Now, our economists have us uh, in real GDP terms being down over the course of the year about five and a half percent. So, if you assume, and yeah, I don't know if this is a good assumption yet or not, we're still doing our own work on it, but you assume that uh, state rev- state tax revenues might be down at least that much, then it's probably fair to say that we've only addressed part of the kind of near-term shortfall. And if you're a state then, you're going to have to either draw down on your own reserves, do some cash flow borrowing, or undertake some austerity. 
uh, or probably some combination of all of those. And you know, stay, this is this you know the, the severity of this downturn is much uh, greater than anyone expected. But coming into this, I think it was it was fair to say that state and local governments had necessarily built reserves back up to levels uh, where before the global financial crisis they would have been able to just rely on their reserves. So it's a sector we've been underway for a while, and I think you're still supposed to look at it that way. But if you're looking at something like airports, for example, which you know on the surface could look pretty scary because no one's flying. The liquidity in the reserve position of airports is um, almost off the charts on the other side. So we think there's a lot more opportunities there. Michael Zizas, thank you so much for being with us. Michael Zizas, Chief U.S. Public Policy and Municipal Strategist for Morgan Stanley, joining us, putting to bed some of my absolute (laughs) catastrophic situation uh, extrapolations, which is a good thing. My father's a mathematician. He and I were talking about how you can't model chaos. And we're kind of entering a chaos uh, type situation. So there is that. When we talk about chaos and sort of the fallout, you think about commercial real estate and you think about all those stores that are forced to shutter and unable to pay their rents. And we're hearing that not only with uh, stores and other businesses, but also individuals, which really raises a question, what's the value of commercial real estate? And will it ever be the same again as people work from home and increasingly uh, choose remote work paths rather than going to the office? Kevin Thorpe joining us now. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Chief Economist and Head of Global Research at Cushman and Wakefield. Uh, Kevin, you know, we've heard a lot of gloom and doom, a massive dislocation in the commercial real estate market with a lot of people saying that not only will missed payments lead to increasing declines in current values, but a shift away from the office place, uh, moving, uh, moving the valuation permanently lower in the longer term. What's your view on that? Yeah. So first, thanks. Thanks for having me on. And I do uh, want to give a big salute to all the you know healthcare professionals, the doctors, the nurses, as well as you know the cleaning staffs, building maintenance, just really everyone who's on the front lines uh, doing their part to, to battle the outbreak. I'm truly in awe of these people. And I think I, I heard earlier uh, the earlier uh, point made that you can't really model chaos, and uh, I couldn't agree more. The, ultimately, the commercial real estate sector you know, has strong links, strong correlations to the broader economy. And there's just so much that's unknowable, the the path of the virus, its duration, its severity. I mean, all of these uh, factors are central to our ability to model the impact on property. And right now, there's just just too many unknowns. This is why forecasts are just all over the map on this and and consistently being revised uh, downwards weekly. I mean, what we do know is that 10 million people just over the last few weeks have applied for unemployment benefits and that uh, recession is truly just a given at this point. Uh, in terms of property, I mean, in pricing, uh, it's it's difficult, if not impossible, to price risk, right, in this environment. So what we're seeing is that many lenders and, and investors have just adopted this wait-and-see posture, um, but would emphasize that this is not the great financial crisis, right, that uh, households and balance sheets are in much better shape uh, there's last cycle, dry powder wasn't there when, when you called it this time. It probably will be. Um, and I, I do think that the big institutions remember the missed opportunities of not deploying capital towards the bottom. So a lot of unknowns, but um, you know, certainly there's uh, different scenarios where, where the capital markets and property could, could uh, com, com, come uh, storming back once we have more certainty. So, Kevin, give us a sense of how the commercial real estate industry 
fared in the context of the $2 trillion fiscal stimulus plan? Yeah. So, um, well, I, I think the, it really starts with, I'll, I'll come at it from the perspective of the landlords, so the, the building owners, the landlords. And it's um, you can't emphasize enough that the, the landlords are being impacted by the decline in the economy, right? That's really the central issue. And many businesses are just struggling to make money right now that, through no, no fault of their own. Just paying rent is, is just already difficult for some. And if this drags out, it'll become increasingly difficult for many. And so, you know, the, the CARE Act, any really any policy that aims to get the economy back on its feet more rapidly is generally good for landlords, generally good for tenants. And so what the CARE Act uh, does, and it does a lot, um, it provides, you know, qualifying tenants with, with different liquidity options. It allows uh, some of them to apply for aid or tax provisions. Uh, and then sort of there's feed-through impacts on the consumer side with the cash payments to households and expanding unemployment benefits. You know, I think all of that should help. Uh, I will say that you know, we are encouraged by what we're seeing so far. So landlords and tenants are, you know, they're, they're working on solutions together. They do recognize it's just a horrible thing that it came out of nowhere. It's no one's fault. And so, you know, there's a very much a let's work together to get through this mentality. Yeah. And Kevin, to your point about first responders and healthcare workers at 7 p.m. every night, everyone opens their windows here in New York City and cheers for the first responders. And yesterday, people mm-hmm. cheered for three straight minutes and had pots and pans that they were banging. And it was they, it's getting yeah. more and more robust with every day. I do want to get to the question, though, of how we're going to emerge from this and some of the sea changes that people are going to uh, experience. And and the, the office place really has been in the center of that. Do you you foresee a time in which a much greater proportion of the workforce does start to work remotely, and we do see that the office space take less relevance and downtown and metropolitan areas become less crowded? Well, I, I do think that what you'll see is every, you know, almost all businesses are, are stopping, they're thinking, let's, let's take another look at that. Uh, what, what I would emphasize, and, and we're, we're thinking through that all of that right now and studying this and, and talking through different scenarios with our clients, I would emphasize that there, this isn't the first time that real estate has had to adapt to just changing a changing macro environment. And you kind of go back the last 10 to 15 years, we've, we've observed so many disruptions when you think about property and real estate, so these technology shifts, co-working, the, the movement towards density, you know, packing more people in, recessions. And real estate does, you know, evolve through these uh, through these macro shifts. And I, I do think teleworking is kind of a good example, especially right now, where you you know people have been able to to connect to the internet and work uh, from home for a long time. This is going on, you know, fifteen twenty years, and demand for office space has continued to grow, right? So the the throughout that period, so the world continues to build office buildings for the for the I think the simple reason that there is strong demand for them. And so, yeah, I I do think this event will cause businesses to take another look at their space. But, you know, I do have confidence the property markets will adapt and continue to play an important role in the economy. So, Kevin, you know, I think there's a fairly, obviously, very good consensus about this second quarter GDP uh, contraction is mm-hmm. going to be very deep, very severe. But uh, obviously, there's probably a little bit more of a confusion or just, you know, I think people discussion about how the country will come out of that second quarter yeah. contraction. How are you thinking about it at Cushman and Wakefield in terms of, you know, third quarter, fourth quarter into 2021? 
sure. And, and you know, very just doing back of the envelope math. When, when we model this, you, you get it uh, to a negative 20, negative 30 percent. Q2 GDP, GDP number uh, uh, in the second quarter. So to your point, the other, uh, other point I would make is just mathematically, just in terms of arithmetic, even if it's not a super strong, you know, uh, rebound in the third quarter, it may look strong just because you're coming, the math of it has lowered your base so much on GDP coming off of Q2. Uh, I, I think timing this, again, is, is just nearly impossible. So the way I, I, I we started to think about it is what's the framework for recovery? And I do think that's becoming clear. So there's the phase one, which is where I think we are now, this defensive phase, which is contain the virus as much as possible, mitigate the economic damage through robust policy measures. And I, you know, I think that's where we are. Phase two is the disaster recovery phase. And so that's likely to be a partial reopening of the economy. People start easing back to work. Confidence begins uh, sort of incrementally coming back as, as, as hopefully the infections begin to abate. And then there's phase three, which is the, sort of the march back to healthy, let's call it march back to healthy GDP, gross domestic product. And economically, we are certainly aiming for the V shape, uh, a snapback recovery. Though there's certainly a, a plenty of other shapes. Uh, I do think ultimately the trajectory of the recovery comes down to the path of the virus itself and where we are on that and when confidence is restored. Uh, my gut says this is a slower U-shape is, is looking increasingly likely at this stage. We're speaking with Kevin Thorpe, chief economist and head of global research at Cushman and Wakefield. And I, I do wonder, there have been a number of calls for the Federal Reserve and the federal government to take a stronger role in backstopping real estate valuations, including commercial real estate. What's your view on that, given the fact that a lot of people are, are saying, you know, focus first on the people who are losing their jobs and supporting states and municipalities? Yeah, so, you know, so, so first, I think the policymakers, both fiscal and monetary, the, the response to this economic crisis, I mean, it's, it's, it, it dwarfs anything we have ever seen before, right? I mean, if, if just for perspective, if you sort of take the, the $2.2 trillion CARES Act, the other two bills that came before that, you factor in all of the, the big, bold moves by the Federal Reserve, flashing interest rates, restarting QE, you know, launching new credit facilities, the dollar swap yeah. lines. I mean, all of that really sums up to a huge, over 20% of GDP. Yeah, so that, Kevin, I'm so sorry to do this. Um, yeah. Let's continue this uh, another time. I'm sorry to say, but we are getting Muriel Bowser. That was Kevin Thorpe of Cushman and Wakefield. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.